Okay, mercenaries. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, but it's. I mean, it's worth. It's worth using the lingo, right? Like, um, oh, absolutely. It makes, it, it makes it sound more like, um, like you know, kind of bland, um, just kind of corporate. You know, PMC. It sounds like crap. Um, Did you get, in your research, did you find the percentage of the war that is like in Afghanistan or Iraq that was, you know, sort of fought by, like, is there any kind of absurd number that's perhaps? I think the, the number that I can call to mind right now is that like 70% of U.S. military personnel are contractors at this stage. And that's not specific like in, to Actively deployed, you mean? active in the world. I don't know if you would call them deployed because we're also talking about people who are like cooks and stuff, but, um, right. Uh, yeah, apparently it's like 9% of the entire U S uh, budget is spent on, it, it goes into spent paying for these, um, hired, like 9% of the total budget or 9% of the military, the total budget. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It's a lot. So, it's, it's, it's crazy, right? Because like, this is the thing that people always say is like, you know, people are fine with socialism when uh, it's for the military. But what you're telling me, it seems, is that this isn't actually socialism. It's, it's just handouts to companies, basically, this 9% of the... Yeah, I mean, like, right, like the the U.S. military is supposed to be like the last Keynesian industry or whatever, right? Or like the right. most Keynesian uh, sector of the U.S. economy, meaning that it's it it remains uh, it remains like state subsidized on a very large scale, much like you know, in the old days, the like the U.S. federal government would decide to build like the Hoover Dam, and that would provide jobs for enough people to actually move the needle on unemployment. Um, so the military was supposed to be the last thing that kind of did that. But as you say, yeah, it's, uh, it looks a little bit more like, you know, that money just goes into the hands of some businesses who then decide how they want to allocate it, um, you know, in order to fulfill the contract that they've signed with the government. Um, yeah. A lot of this is like probably nothing new, like um, in terms of the non-combatant stuff. Um, like, you know, the people that fuel the airplanes or whatever, um, were, were not necessarily ever government employees. Um, is that true? I did not know that. I think they're like, I, I don't know if like, if during world war two or something, for example, when there was full conscription and everybody was like, you know, full court press trying to beat the Nazis, probably then they were government. Um, but like, you know, um, when you don't have a war economy, um, the, uh, the government isn't shelling out pensions for all the little dude all, all the cooks and all the stuff like that right so um you know that's that's part of it is is that like when we talk about these um military contractors they're not all gun-toting nutcases um uh, i'm just gonna say like i would not have thought that like if you like when you say it yeah it makes sense like everything's like that like you know but but that's it's part of the same kind of disease like my university that i work at used to employ all of the cleaning staff, for instance, and now they're contracted out to a private company because like 
basically they, they didn't want to pay union wages anymore. And so like, there's a lot of things like that, right? Um, the food service in, in big institutions used to be sort of run by those institutions and now it's all Aramark or whatever, right? Exactly, um, yeah. And so, so what you're saying is like that was all that was going on in the military. You know, even though like we probably all, I mean, I have this image of like, you know, like join the army and be like a cook on an on a aircraft carrier and get your college paid for. And that's a pretty sweet deal still, you know, like yeah. you probably don't have to kill anybody and you, you, you know, you learn a trade or whatever, but, but you're saying like that, that just doesn't happen. I mean, you know, I, I just think it's, it probably is dependent on, on, on the branch of the military. They all operate very differently. Um, but, but it's, it's definitely part of the, that 9% of the U S total budget is, you know, it's not, it's not just combatants. Um, it's, um, all of these attendant need, like the U S has like over 200 bases around the world. They have like golf courses on them. They have McDonald's on them. Those people are private military contractors essentially. Right. I see. So um, even like McDonald's is getting in on this shit. For sure. McDonald's is a company just like Blackwater is, right? And, uh, you know, the people flipping burgers there are... They're doing it for America, man. Ex yeah, through so Vita. I'm surprised that's not more part of the... Like, that was kind of a Tim Hortons thing for a while, wasn't it? Like, it was, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a Tim Hortons in Afghanistan. Yeah, but they opened it on like a Canadian base in Afghanistan and like, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, isn't this kind of heartwarming, right? Like those, those darling soldiers are getting their double doubles. Yeah. yeah they're, you know. Time to make their coffee. Um, Is he going to make it? <laughs> yeah, anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> do you remember that Tim Hortons commercial with the snowplow or whatever? It doesn't matter. It was a good one. It was a good one. I remember the ones where it's, he was. It's a little bit grotesque when you think about it being in like a war zone. But yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> We'll get dark soon enough. Might as well have a nice chuckle. <laughs> um, okay, so so this exists. So, like, who are these companies? Let's start there, I guess. Is that what you wanted to do? Yeah, I think that makes sense to start. Like, so, because I mean, there, a lot of these are names, and I'm not going to go over every company, obviously, but a lot of these are names that that are um, it's somewhat commonly known. And in a previous episode, we already talked about Blackwater, and we'll do we'll do a little bit more Blackwater talk now because they're kind of the most famous one, but. Um, I thought we'd start with uh, what might be um, the oldest still active one, or at least the, uh, one of the you know, earliest, which is DynCore. Um, DynCore? D yeah. Like DynoCore? No, like Dynamic. Like D-Y-N. Oh, like D-Y. Okay. Dyn yeah, D-Y-N-C-O-R-P. DynCorp or Corp, whatever. Um, corp. Yeah, Corp. I guess it's Corp. Um, they are, uh, they've been around since like um, shortly after the Second World War, but initially they were sort of more of just like an aviation company. So again, like, like I was saying, there's kind of always been, um, uh, you know, a need for the military to go outside and hire people to like deal with the logistics of getting planes off the ground in places and whatever, right? Well, sure, right? Like Boeing or whatever, you know, all those airplane companies, all they, they, they make far more money building warplanes war probably than they do making, you know, 737s or whatever. For sure. And then what DynCor emerges out of is that they weren't only providing the finished product of the plane, but they were also, you know, providing the guy who like waxes the propeller or like, you know, unclogs the gas hose or whatever. Right. Okay. So like, yeah. these are not, these are not soldiers. These are, these are people um, who would oftentimes be in war zones or on bases or whatever. Um, and at a certain point they determined that they needed to be um, trained, like trained to, to provide defense, like security for the aircraft, for the 
various things that DynCorp was leasing out to its government, um, uh, like contracts. So, you know, it, it wasn't, it wouldn't have just been airplanes, but as time went on, it would have been other kind of uh, supply and logistics uh, equipment for the army and different branches of the military. And time goes on and eventually these guys are, are armed. They look just like any other soldier in a, in a, in a, a war zone or um, somewhere that's just staffed with the, with the military. Right. So, um, so they were, they sort of stopped being civilian labor at that point. Like they're, they're armed. They're it's armed. True. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like if, you know, if an, if an enemy attacks a base, they're not only shooting at us soldiers, but they're also shooting at guys with guns who are there to protect, uh, the equipment that has been you know leased out for this purpose right um, oh wait so like the military doesn't even own the equipment uh i think actually like so they might own the airplane but they don't necessarily own the refueling truck weird okay things like that right so like so they're, so they're just finding ways to siphon off a little of that nine percent yeah, I mean, this is, we're talking about like, you know, this is an early days, right? So like right. in the 60s or, or probably in the 60s, uh, maybe even the 50s. And the army, like, you know, US is expanding. It's like, it's the biggest army the world's ever seen. It's all over the world. It's in Korea. It's in wherever. And uh, all over Europe. Um, so if you're an enterprising young man. Yeah, exactly. Like you think about like, uh, you think about like, I don't know, a hockey team that has a bus they have to all ride into then like to their game in another town they're not employing the like mechanic who might have to show up and fix the bus if it breaks down that's the bus company's mechanic right so it's you know i think that this is where kind of dynecore comes out of um but eventually they start you know carrying weapons and um they're moderately trained but they don't have army training or marine training or anything like that and um and eventually, uh, you know, in sort of low intensity areas where the military might have, you know, a responsibility to protect a certain, you know, small area or building or a certain very important person, um, this type of uh, cheap, you know, armed person, armed whoever he is, um, yeah, you can get that as part of the package, right? Um, so DynCore starts that way. Um, DynCore is like by far the creepiest company you could ever look up. Uh, oh, yeah. There is nowhere that DynCorp has been that doesn't involve sex, human trafficking, like sex trafficking, underage, uh, you know, child abuse. Um, like, there's uh, that there's, sucks. So, is that just because they work in war zones, or like, are there like actual connections to these? It seems to be like endemic. Like, it's it's obviously because they work in war zones. So, like, you know, there is the um, the things that kind of we we probably would be lying if we said oh mercenaries are the cause of you know uh prostitution that's even creepier than the usual prostitution no any soldiers in any war zones or probably there's a certain percentage who get up to some uh like stuff that we wouldn't be comfortable with but um dyncore it's just they've been exposed to having this happen all over the place and there's been implications that that they are running sex trafficking rings out of these war zones it happened especially they got they got busted in uh there was a whistleblower there were two whistleblowers when they were there in bosnia during like the peacekeeping okay, um, okay. so this sort of 
I don't know. I, I, I don't have a, uh, much background to talk about this, but there's, there's a sort of a known fact. But I mean, like that makes, it makes sense, right? Like if you just think about what, a, what, what those guys are doing, like they're not under any, they just have a job, right? They're, they took a job that probably pays really well because it's kind of dangerous, right? right. Uh, so like they're mercenaries, they're out for a buck. They're not, they're not there to save the country. They don't have any of that sort of, and like you said, they haven't been through the kind of training, which means they haven't been through the brainwashing either, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like it makes sense that they would be, you know, like I can't remember, but I bet you, if you go read those like Machiavelli things or like the Sun Tzu things, it says like, this is why you don't want to use mercenaries if you don't mm -hmm. have to, you know, like because they are gonna have interests that exceed the mission interests or whatever. Right? Yeah, they'll they'll do things that are counterproductive uh, if there's money in it because they're there mm -hmm. for money only, right? Um, yeah, uh, and, and DynCor, you know, seems to be susceptible to that. Um, there, they were there in Colombia. I think they were fighting on both sides of the drug war in Colombia with FARC and also against FARC. Um, right. There was um, they were working with you know drug cartels that involved. Um, you know, sex abuse uh, rings down there. Oh, I see. Because so, like, they'll fight for shady. They'll they'll work for whoever. Is that what you're saying? Right. So, like in those days, right? There was there was um, there were paramilitaries, or I guess they were kind of like government military uh, units that were fighting FARC, right? And so those units are basically counterinsurgency units um they're like cops but they're like jungle running gunners at the same time and so you know a lot of times they couldn't handle FARC so they would hire you know experienced uh former military former U.S. military uh working for a company like DynCor and uh you know when that's the the conflict area that you're embedded in um some of your allies are uh engaged in very terrifying methods of controlling their, you know, respective populations, uh, gang, gang and funding their operations and right? funding like, their operations, yeah. um, running blackmail stuff, intimidation and so on. And the thing is, DynCorp just never seems to have seen any reason that they shouldn't get just as involved in that stuff as well, or at least allegedly, I, I you know, I don't want them coming after me, but, um, so the funniest, but it uh, seems like we made a jump, right? Like, mm -hmm. It sounds like DynCorp is no longer, and forgive me if I missed this jump, but it sounds like DynCorp is no longer just refueling planes with a gun on their hip in case something happens. They're now, at some point along the line, they, they, they became just guards and just guns for hire, ex-military who could make more money afterwards. That yeah, that's it. That's it for sure. Like um, I, I, I started out describing, you know, what the origins of the, of the company was and how they came to find themselves going in this direction. But now they are like Blackwater. They are like um, the other combatant type, uh, uh, you know, ex-soldier, ex-marine. Right. Who... And that's what I would have thought. Like if you told me about, about mercenaries, right? Like that's what I, like sort of Soldier of Fortune magazine, right. these shady yeah. things. You know, like yeah. nobody reputable would hire such people. Soldier of Fortune magazine is kind of hilarious. Do you, what, can you kind of explain what it is? I mean, I don't really know much about it, except that it's sort of like, 
like it's a fantasy magazine for for guys with big guns, right? And um, yeah. it tells these stories of like, uh, you know, guys who, who were ex-military or whatever, and then they get to go off to the jungle and there's big titty women who are thankful <laughs> for them. So, and, you know, that kind of thing, right? right? And it's sort of like, it's a, um, a fantasist sort of thing, right? Uh, but like, you know, it's sort of based in reality, obviously. But the point is like, those are the, that's how I would have pictured mercenaries. Right? Well, and this Not is as respectable people who work for the U.S. government, basically. Yeah, and this is like this is a good way to get into like kind of the perception of of what you expect a mercenary to be, because like you do expect sort of like someone who's like kind of like has a thick looking head and a sunburn and like bad right. tattoos and like you know is a racist cop or just like kind of washed out of racist cop school and went like to other uh, like those guys that. I don't know if you want to talk about this, but like those guys that tried to start a Venezuelan coup or whatever. Well, they are mercenaries. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, but those yeah, are yeah. like sort of fortune mercenaries. Like they exactly. were just meathead idiots, right? Yeah. Who like just fucked up the whole thing. Yeah. Totally. And uh, and so it is that I think there's that image for sure that like we should definitely drive home is that like you're kind of expecting that private military contractors are kind of guys that like maybe did one tour, two tours, came back and didn't really have like the kind of um, social graces to get a racist cop job. And so they're in um, like Eastern Europe, you know, beating up some gypsy camp or whatever, right? Like it's, you expect kind of like- Richard Jewell, you expect Richard Jewell. Yeah, but he's more endearing. But yeah, exactly. Like people who like kind of want to be soldiers who are like or kind of like going um, trash. The Seth Rogen character in that creepy movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, something servant protector, resistant, whatever. I forget what. It's yeah, called. but oh yeah, servant reporters. Observant, anyway. observant report, maybe yeah. Yeah, but, but um, like yeah, basically like a guy who has watched too many action movies probably and owns a lot of guns and. Uh, it has a yeah. terrible attitude towards humanity generally. Like if, you know, if they got a respectable job, it would be in like forcing homeless people off benches, yeah. at subway stations or whatever. Right. Like they would be yeah. some, like authority worshiping dickhead. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so that's, that's the kind of like image we get from Dynecore. There actually is a movie about the, oh, so that's Dynecore. <laughs> That's the image we get. I, I, I won't go okay. that far, but I, uh, but I think that that's kind of like, that's where the, the era of Dynecore, which I think is a little bit past now. It's like um, the 80s. Like the 80s, yeah. The okay. 80s, like yeah. the high watermark of like, you know, kind of white trash mercenaries. And, right. um, and that was, you know, before Blackwater um, and before many of these other companies that we now uh, are aware of. But um, yeah, so... Um, and Soldier of Fortune magazine, like, you know, the, these fucking mercenaries would just put out, like, there was, like, pages and pages after personal ads. And then people would, like, hire them to do assassinations. Like, some guy hired a guy out of Soldier of Fortune to kill his wife. And then right. someone sued the magazine because of it, right? It was, like, an insane right. operation. It's over now, but, uh, like, they, they shut down. But anyway, it's kind of a wild thing that ever existed. It um, doesn't exist anymore? They shut it down a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think it's... Because of that kind of shit? Because, like, that was where you went to find Hitman, basically? I doubt it. I would just, I, I didn't look into why they shut down. My, my, my assumption would be that like mercenary business is essentially like you're on like level of Google now. 
So they don't need like a shitty little magazine where they, where you sell your services in the back pages. Like you're basically like a top, like fortune 500 company. If you're um, selling mercenary services at this point. So right. fortune magazines day is maybe over. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, so that's, that was Dynecore. Um, and I don't have too much more to say, but other than there's a movie called whistleblower that's about that whole Bosnia scandal. And okay. uh, it's a, uh, it's a good movie. Um, so, so that would have been like pre nine eleven, pre pre Gulf War two. Is that what you're saying? Uh, so Dynecore still exists, but yeah, that Bosnia scandal was in like the nineties, right? Like the when yeah. when the um, wars in the Balkans were happening. Right. So um, at that point, like you know, mo- like they were still those guys with like guns who were refueling planes and stuff or were they like, was, was the U S military at that point already sort of uh, paying contractors to do this sort of combat stuff? The U S military was definitely far more, uh, their footprint was mostly um, government, like traditional military um, units of one kind or another. Uh, I think in Bosnia, it was the UN that hired Dynecore. Um, oh interesting or it may have been some other european country but um but it and did was they a, hire them but like all i mean is like were they hired to be soldiers or were they hired to be support i think it was a peacekeeping mission okay so they're like like you know they're well, doing, like, were they wearing u.n helmets and carrying rifles and no they were wearing dime were corp. they like they were dressed in dime corp, dime corp uniforms i'm sure but they were doing what the blue helmets were doing essentially okay they were they were auxiliary attachments to the to the UN troops right as I recall um what else was I gonna say uh oh yeah but maybe this will help okay so again so yeah we are talking about a period in the 80s and 90s when the U.S. military hadn't moved full court press into the like it was still a small percentage of what the U.S. U.S. military was doing um the kind of golden age as I called it or the sort of like high watermark uh, started basically as um, the the regime, uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa was starting to lose its um, its stability, right? Oh, like so, early nineties, right? So, okay. um, so South Africa had this big um, kind of, I guess you'd call it a leakage of racist cops and military guys um, yeah. that had been serving the apartheid regime, just beating up. Uh, black bystanders for for um, decades, right? Yeah, they were good at that and disappearing right, yeah. them and so on. Um, and and if those, you were white South African, like everybody had to join the military. Like it was one of those countries, right? I you would know better than I would actually. I, I don't know, um, but uh, I think so. it's like a yeah. mandatory service. Like everybody, every man in uh, in apartheid South Africa had to do military service. And we're talking about like like. A, a military, um, like an institutional military system in South Africa that was unique to basically the entire region, right? Like there was yeah. nothing like it in at least that part of Africa. Um, nothing that had adopted European methods and uh, had the kind of like um, sort of, uh, you know, like the ability to project force in that level and the, that kind of chain of command. And so as like... Um, and like we're actively using it all the time. Yeah, exactly. Like had uh, had like a, a sort of a, a, a like a program of enforcement around their 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 area. Yeah. 
And so, um, so after the fall of the apartheid government, I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me that you're saying this, like mm -hmm. you have these people who no longer have positions. Right. I think, I think where this out, really right? kicks off is like, is, 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 um, like kind of in the midst of apartheid being like destabilized, I think they were downsizing or something like they were losing their grip on things and mm -hmm. it became more opportune uh, to go to like Angola and fight communists there. Cause this we're still right. talking like in the eighties or maybe even the seventies when this starts, this starts happening. Um, Mozambique, I think had a, had a civil war that where, where there was like, um, you know, like communists as well. So, so what these guys were, were kind of like, right-wing white supremacists uh with military backgrounds and police backgrounds and they were um going to places where uh you know in the context of the late cold war there was um you know funding to fund paramilitary uh pushback against communist um insurgency groups like indigenous insurgency groups in, in southern africa and so basically you get um, this like this new industry pops up because the U.S. didn't really want to make an official footprint there, and you know Western Europe, same deal. Um, they although I'm sure they somebody, were somebody, you know, the dirty work. Got yeah, it. so so there was Makes business sense. there, right? Yeah. Uh, so executive outcomes is the biggest one of those. It was executive outcomes. Mm, I love the name. That's a much greasier name than DynaCorp or whatever. <laughs> you think it's? Yeah, I mean, it's they yeah, all have the perfect. Outcome. They all have the perfect like slightly obscured but still very menacing names executive outcome yeah. like i can't picture an executive outcome being anything other than like getting my head caved in with the butt of a rifle or something like that's the outcome um but yeah so uh executive outcomes um uh eventually they had to kind of like like uh that, that they were a firm so this is a private company they had to okay. eventually uh uh exit South Africa in terms of um, where they're registered, where their business operates out of, because South Africa being a post-apartheid government at a certain point uh, realized that these fucking companies uh, were the worst. So they yeah. were just like, they, they basically outlawed um, mercenaries in, in uh, the South African government made it illegal. Right. So executive outcomes, it has this like kind of these glory, glory days, where there's wars all over the place, there's communists to kill, and uh, and they have you know their free run, but but then they have to shut down. Um, who else do we want to talk about? I, so I guess we should uh, go over Blackwater, um, them being of obviously the biggest name of all. Um, and we've talked. Yeah, about so they, let's talk about their origin, though. That's that's good. I like this. Where do they come from? What Black Blackwater? What's their deal? Blackwater is a, a, a U.S. homegrown outfit. Mm -hmm. um, starts up in uh, the 90s. Um, by the 1990s. The, the 1990s. Uh, yeah. uh, under the initiative of a man named Eric Prince. Uh, we've talked about him before, but I'll recap. Eric Prince is a, a man who is deeply involved in Republican politics um, and uh, right-wing think tanks and right-wing political action. Um, his father also was a, uh, a major funder of Christian right-wing political initiatives going back to basically the people that um, bankrolled 
and uh, and provided all the, the the ground level support when Reagan was um, the kind of face of the Republican Party and, and Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, the Gipper, Ronald Reagan, okay. <laughs> yeah, Ron. Ron. Um, he, he so so Ronald Reagan so back in the Reagan administration, you got these fucks, the Prince family, mm-hmm. paying for stuff. Mm-hmm. Their son, and their Eric. Son's... Okay, so yeah, what's he do? So Eric Prince, he went into the Navy SEALs, um, and he's, uh, you know, with this, like, kind of, uh, has this, like, pseudo, like, I mean, you'd almost call it romantic, but it's, like, he's he's just so creepy. It's not, it's not romantic. It's, like, he has this, like, crusader Christian idea of uh, warrior culture, or, like, this this sort of, like, fantasy of it, right? And he goes into the Navy SEALs. He's, by all accounts, he's a fairly effective Navy SEAL. Um, but when his father dies, his father's this big industrialist, like his company invented like the fucking light bulb in your, uh, in your, like the shade thing in your car, the mirror, like the, yeah, that sounds like it sucks. Yeah. But anyway, he's got money for some dumb reason. It's a ton of money. Um, and so he, uh, so he decides he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be the CEO of, of Prince industrial, whatever. Uh, so he takes all of his money and he, um, buys up this plot of land in, uh, I think it's uh, Virginia, and uh, uh, he starts training terrorists. He envisions it as a, like a high uh, a high end training uh, facility for like um, cops and military. Right. So he was like a big meathead, like kind of son of a rich man who's just seen too many. He's like, I'm going to train like, like seen too many Steven Seagal movies or something. Is that yeah, fair to I mean, say or not? Like, I don't know what he's actually like, but that's kind of what that sounds like. Like a dumb idea. <laughs> I but mean, it works because you have a billion dollars. I, I wish I could believe that, but he just seems yeah. so effective that I, I have a hard time thinking he's anything less than like an evil genius. Yeah, but Disgusting um, psychopath. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So part of what makes this work is that, you know, he and a couple of his executives who, who go into this venture with him are former Navy SEALs and they use that, like that, that as a networking platform, basically, so that they get uh, contracts that basically other similar companies would have a hard time getting. They, they have a, a pipeline straight to the top of the Department of Defense. Um, oh, so it totally is just like, he's just using his like family connections. No, it's his own Navy SEALs connections. His, his family really had no background like that. Um, he is, you know, he's, he's got this, he's like seals are an elite unit, right? So like he, it's a small group oh, yeah, okay. and he is um, going to and his- And they get into government somehow. Uh, they... So, I mean, he's very like, he's very into like political funding and whatever, but, uh, but this like, Blackwater outfit is essentially basically he's going to his former commanders and saying, Hey, ah, you've got these guys that haven't seen any combat. Um, come out to my farm. We've got like, oh, you know, nice. we've got all this stuff. Um, it's gonna, you know, we're gonna give them, you know, elite training. Um, they get a big. Oh, boost. so he started as like a training guy. It's a training thing. Sense. Yeah. Okay. So like, whereas Dyncor was like a, a logistics support, um, yeah. and uh, and like you know, executive outcomes was just like the overflow like of muscle. Yeah. Of apartheid cops. This is a whole. This is another thing. This is a guy who who's you know he he kind of anticipated that the United States was going to have a big presence in. Um, kind of counterinsurgency wars, right? And so he right. Was- so like, if there's one thing, one thing, I thought the military did, it was train 
people. Yeah, so I know. You're right? telling me that even the Navy SEALs, the elite unit, they outsourced their training or they, they started to, to these Blackwater fucks. I mean, I, I also don't get it. Like, who, who do they have in the SEALs that needs train, like, training at this private outfit? But Well, I thought the whole point of the SEALs was that they were very highly trained. Exactly, right? Like, who, why do the SEALs need that? But maybe it's not the SEALs, but it's, it's the connections to the SEALs command that gets the contracts, right? So the okay. government has um, a need for training, and police departments have a need for training, and this guy has the ability to make those deals happen police departments oh oh big that time. sucks so much ass so Fuck you know, this guy but we're, anyway we're going. well aware of this now right we're well aware yeah. of, the, of the militarization of the american police but this is in the mid-90s yeah yeah totally so this is how it happened <laughs> this is a guy who anticipated that this was like the way it was going and he uh, right. established a, a business around it um the the big boost they get is like columbine so they oh said, no <laughs> this guy sucks a lot wait for people. it they they would set up like school scenarios where people were like had like squibs that were making them bleed out and oh, stuff man. and like they would have like cops come from fucking butt fuck like nevada or wherever oh, and come man. in and like run through this routine and be like call home and be like oh man I'm, I'm so ready to like save some school kids or whatever and so this is so i this just I, sucks a lot. Keep going, yeah. At this point, I should reference that uh, I'm pulling this from a book. It's by Jeremy Scahill. It's called Blackwater. Jeremy Scahill is a great reporter. Um, the the guy that he quotes, who was a former like executive partner, like right at the top of Blackwater, um, at this stage, says that like the reason he left is that Eric Prince was tiering the services to like when the navy seals guys would come they'd do elite training and then when the idaho cops would come they just like kind of not show them all the good stuff so like the this is a man who has figured out that there's like a shady business here and he knows how to like squeeze every penny out of it right like he knows how to keep it keep it like elite and exclusive when he needs to he knows how to get government contracts and like grandfathered in like some like nice nice like uh you know, like some good deals with, uh, with the top people. And, uh, and he knows how to respond to like tragedy in the public psyche. And he knows where there's an opportunity there. He's, he's got, he's like fucking dialed in. Um, mm. The next thing that, that uh, happens that boosts Blackwater is of course, 9-11, the war on terror. Uh, once again, tragedy being the impetus for them to, you know, um, expand. Uh, Blackwater's, hits the news mostly because of their presence in Iraq. Um, yeah, so we should probably talk about that. That seems kind of big, no? Or do you not want to talk about that? Well, it's, it, it, it's covered it's, elsewhere. It's kind of big. It's, it's I, I think what we should mention for sure is that this is where we kind of switch from that like thing where these are like, you know, a, a few proxy wars in Africa, a few plane refuelings uh, to the point where we're now getting towards 70% of the military budget, right? Right. Like this, it's during Iraq war two that, that like that, that shift happens. Um, hopefully this episode will eventually get to some of the like, you know, policy minds behind that. But, but for now we'll say that Blackwater, like they disgraced themselves in Iraq for sure. Um, they, you know, there, there was the Nasir mass, the square massacre that we talked about in a previous episode where, you know, four Blackwater guys wound up getting arrested, but then pardoned by Trump. Uh, for massacring a bunch of people standing around in Iraq. Um, there was also, you know, Fallujah and, uh, you know, the, the guys hanging from the, 
corpses hanging from the the bridges and stuff. Those were Blackwater guys. Um, you know, they they kind of represented um, what happened in the media around Iraq, uh, the Iraq War too, versus how wars used to happen like in Vietnam with the body bags coming home and stuff and like everybody turning against the war like the anti-war movement is like those are our boys those are our sons the draft and everything is so evil this was like the same fucking shit was happening these contractors were dying but it was like eh, it doesn't really matter right because they're they're there they're just a bunch of like kind of meathead racist cops they, they went there on their own terms so as long as they're contractors and not U.S. soldiers doesn't have the same Vietnam effect. Now it eventually did. I mean, I think there's Iraq war fatigue for sure, but um, uh, you know, this was like, I think, a well, I mean, I think, I think one thing that like the Iraq war is still happening yeah. and we don't really think about it probably because it's mostly contractors, right? Is that so like when they say we're going to withdraw all the troops, they're not talking about the contractors. Right. So exactly. when you withdrew, they, they took most of the U.S. troops out, and now there's just a small force that's involved with training and policing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean they reduced their footprint in terms of contractors, does it? Probably not, although, you know, who knows? Blackwater doesn't right. exist anymore. We don't know who's funding what. Um, they, they might run it through the, you know, the Iraqi government and have the Iraqi government pay for it uh, with a stipend from the Defense Department that who knows where that is allocated to, or they might get it from, they might get the, you know, the Iraqi government might pay for that through their, um, their supporters in some other country, right? And like, in, you know, it, yeah. nobody really knows. Um, but yes, like, the I, IMF loans, but yeah. I think, I think your point is, is like, fair enough, right? Like, we're, t- we, we can't even get the, the withdrawal of US troops, um, even though their presence is quite small, presumably, uh, because Iraq is in a situation where um, what happens if you remove the U.S. troops? What happens if you remove, uh, you know, control and command, right? Who is operating there? Um, it's pro- there probably are a lot of people, a lot of uh, contractors operating there basically on, uh, under the auspices of a mission that came, of it, like at some point came down from the Department of Defense in the U.S., but it's so hard to tell. Um, so uh so why don't we this seems like are there any more companies you want to talk about or is that are those the big three there is one more okay Um, and it's one that i don't want to talk too much about because i'm afraid they'll kill me but uh (laughs) all right well allegedly yeah so there's something called the wagner group um which we're not talking about some uh, uh, like a, a company that is um uh, hired to enact U.S. Department of Defense uh, interests at this point. In this case, we're talking about um, what is described when I look it up as basically an extension of the Russian, like the Kremlin. Um, so this is a contemporary uh, example rather than Blackwater, which is at least 15 years old, and Dyncor, which is, you know, much older. Um, Wagner Group is is something that is is basically come into reporting that I've looked at in the last uh, couple of years, and um, the motivation behind why would the Russians use um, use a uh, a contractor versus um, why would the Americans use one? I think is worth it's it's interesting in itself. So um, 
uh, mercenaries are very close to illegal in, in Russian law because um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, one of the only things that had any control was the Russian army. Um, so they didn't want any mercenaries. Uh, but now there seems to be some reason that the Russian government might want to have um, forces in places like Syria that, or, you know, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, yeah. that don't have, that don't like get traced back to their own. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah. So it's not just. Great game player or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not just cheaper. It's also um, plausible deniability is, is the point of the of Wagner group. And, and I, I guess, you know, we don't need to go any further than that. There, there was, uh, if you want to, you know, if you want to know where I heard of them, um, it's just that they had a shootout in Syria with um, some, uh, a group that involved um, U.S. JSOC forces and, and, other, uh, and their allies. And so this was actually fire exchange between Russian citizens and U.S. citizens. So that's a pretty big deal. But it's all deniable. Well, it wasn't really. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't really, right. So, uh, and that was in 2018. So that's, that's um, you know, more recent than Iraq War II. Um, so, yeah, so, so this is kind of like, these are kind of um, some big names in the story of mercenaries right now. That's the kind of who's who. I mean, at least, at least where <laughs> I come from. I don't know. There's probably other names too. No, I mean, that sounds good. Like those are, I mean, the only one I heard of was Blackwater. And the other ones are, are new to me. Yeah. And so... Uh, why don't we talk about, about, um, who do you want to talk about? You want to talk about Donald Rumsfeld or you want to talk about like the way, why don't we just sort of talk about how these things became so important, how they went from being these kind of embarrassing, uh, rubes of soldier and fortune to being yeah. an important arm of, of projecting power if you're Russia or America. Yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I've noticed, Mike, that in our last like four or five episodes, everything we've talked about has kind of have a, had a pivot point in like the 70s or early 80s. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we were talking about like... more about that. Okay, cool. The, uh, the like minor strike with Thatcher when we talked about Mark right. Fisher. Yeah. Um, we talked about... Uh, um, when we were talking about the geopolitics episode, we were kind of talking about like Kissinger and how like his like kind of um, grand strategy kind of fell apart in the mid seventies under Nixon's uh, government. And, um, and then uh, even the other day we were talking about like Foucault and uh, the, you know, kind of like the, the, um, the neoliberal turn and all that stuff. And, and right, right. like, uh, uh, I guess kind of, you know, the kind of privatization and, and, uh, and individualization of, of sort of like, you know, the social uh, uh, character of, of the Western world in the 70s and 80s. Um, so this is going to go back to that point again, right? Um, we have to talk about, unfortunately, I'm sorry, we have to talk about Nixon. Um, Nixon, uh, like, it, it, this is sort of, there's, there's a lot of like fascinating shit to talk about, but um, the point where like the u.s basically had to change its approach to warfare mm. right um it's bound up in a lot of things but they kind of concentrate around like sort of the nixon administration so one of them was vietnam. is that why or yes i was gonna say one of those things the big like giant thing was vietnam and vietnam was massively unpopular and disastrous and nixon and kissinger were trying to get out of it right 
um, they were not averse to using military force in Vietnam, but they were trying to find a way through diplomacy to get, you know, either China or Russia or both to agree with them on some things and, and stop the need for a U.S. military presence in this quagmire, right? Um, so there's the Nixon doctrine. He gave a speech in Guam and he said, basically there will like, this is, this is not a direct quote, but the paraphrase is there will not be any more Vietnam. So the United States will honor its treaties. The United States will do like what it has to do according to <coughs> what we've, what we've already agreed to. But if you are a country like South Vietnam and you think the communists are going to support your enemies in, in your own territory, and give them guns and Kalashnikovs and a few like mines and stuff. You're not expecting, you shouldn't be expecting the U S cavalry to ride in anymore. This is going to be kind of your problem, but we will give you money. We'll give you weapons or sell them to you at least. Um, but the U S military footprint around the world is just too goddamn expensive. And this is tied up in a lot of other things, right? Like the OPEC oil crisis that would come up, the oil shocks were basically like manufacturing was just, not plausible anymore um, because of the price of oil or, you know, like just the, the, you know, the need to like separate the dollar from the Bretton Woods agreement and just like kind of stop dealing with that. Um, this is the 1970s, right? I don't know. Can you think of like, I, I always think of the movie network, but like there's that whole like malaise of like, yeah, we're fucked. Like we can't afford empire anymore. It's just too, too expensive. Um, uh, so, that's kind of like what Nixon and Kissinger were trying to get out of. And then Nixon gets impeached um, and Gerald Ford takes over. And uh, at this point, right, there's like the war is fucked. Everybody hates the war, yeah. but there are those senators and those congressmen who still are like hawks. A lot of them right. are Democrats at this point. Yeah. But there are some that are Republicans and the Hawks are extremely um, skeptical of Henry Kissinger and Nelson Rockefeller, who are the secretary of state and vice president under Gerald Ford. Right. Okay. These are the Rockefeller Republicans. These are the people that are basically, they're not, you know, are, is their allegiance to America uh, like real or are they just like global elites who want to like kind of, you know, um, like make agreements and detente with China or Russia, like, uh, like whose side are they really on? Um, there is this other group, right. Which is um, dedicated to all out war with the Soviet Union, all at war, every front of the globe, but they're and in the, the minority. Believers yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they're in the minority at this point and they find a, uh, a champion. In in the uh, in Gerald Ford's uh, Secretary of Defense, Mister Congressman, former Congressman Donald Rummy Rumsfeld. Oh, that fuck. Okay, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say that the movie where he just talks to the camera sucks so hard? Oh, the one that's like the Fog of War director guy. Yeah, but like, there's like that. Like he's the least introspective person. Like he sucks so much. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, he's a salesman. Um, Donald Rumsfeld is like a, a like. There's a vacuum behind his face. He is. Yeah. He, he is completely without substance. Um, he's pretty. That movie Vice. 
Did you see that about Cheney? Yeah, the uh, where the, Steve Carell plays him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's accurate, but that that was like I knew that was who you were, you fuck. Where he's just like telling disgusting jokes and, and oh yeah, 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 just yeah, being a shithead. Okay, so if all like he's a totally cynical character in that movie, but that doesn't come across in like the interview. Like he's no, he's for sure, for sure. Because he's a, he's a very um, he's a very like he's a guy who has like a a, a social intelligence. He can right. protect himself correctly. I'll, I'll give you my like visceral impression of Rumsfeld. He seen like his mannerisms and his way of speaking are exactly like my grandfather to me. And it's like, yeah. it seems like, like, you know, and, and, and I should say Donald Rumsfeld is probably the closest I've come even closer than Kissinger or Cheney or anyone to like the most evil person I can think of. So mm-hmm. like, it's, it's this, it's the dynamic of him being able to like, you know, he has that, like, you know, that nostalgic thing of like, you want to have like a, rum and coke with him on the dock at the cottage but right. like you like but the reality of it behind him is that he is like he's a terrifying monster yeah. absolutely horrid yeah he's cthulhu so he, that's kind of like ron reagan right like that's the like absolutely reagan was a horrifying monster who liked jelly beans absolutely and and these are the people that we're talking about now when we talk about um <coughs> the the pushback against the Rockefeller Republicans. The, these are people who are behind their mask. They're, they're, they're even more evil than the global elites that already, you know, are the third that they're so critical of, but in, in, in their face, they have this like white guy, uh, nostalgic factor that makes you think that they're, um, that, that, that they kind of like, even though like, you're like, you know, the world has moved past you or whatever, you still think that there's something like kind of like, you know, charming about them. Well, you've been um, trained to trust people like that your whole life. Yes, they play on like signals that you've been trained to trust, and 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 that's how that's how they work. I mean, Reagan was an actor, a cowboy actor. Rumsfeld, even more effective as like you know, not a professional actor. Um, where was I? So, Rumsfeld. But he just like looks like a competent government government guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he was in it since he was like yeah. eight. Right, yeah. like he was a con- a very, like he was the youngest Depart- uh, Secretary of Defense there ever was. Um, he was a, like one of the youngest. Like what people thought they were electing when they were voting for Joe Biden, like what they wanted was Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, at the time, maybe. Yeah, I mean, eventually, well, like, from Grace was very clear, but yeah. Yeah, but like they wanted the 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 competent master of the you know the, who knows how to pull the levers and make deals and whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Um, so Rumsfeld takes over a department of defense and his first order of business is he's in a feud with Kissinger. Um, okay. Kissinger is in favor of detente and Rumsfeld is not. Okay. Uh, Kissinger is in favor Who wins? of Rumsfeld. Uh, Kissinger is in favor of, uh, an, uh, a, like an arms control treaty called SALT, which would be, which would kind of cap how many nuclear weapons the U S and, and the Soviets would, produce and, and, and uh, stock, uh, stockpile. Uh, Rumsfeld was saying, no good. We, 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 need, we don't need to make deals with them to limit potential destruction. We need to threaten them and make them upset. Um, the people that gather around Rumsfeld at this stage, very, like the very beginning of his uh, tenure as uh, Secretary of Defense, are called the, um, uh, count, uh, the Committee on the Present Danger uh, and they're the second version of that. So the first version was uh, the Committee on the Present Danger China, which has reemerged now today. Um, but <laughs> they're back. They're okay, back. Great. 
But at the time, it was the Committee on the Present Danger USSR. And um, what they were essentially, um, what they existed to do was to, uh, to argue against the uh, drawdown of defense spending, which was at least in some sense based on the CIA's um, analysis of the Soviet Union's military um, resources, which the CIA said, it's not that bad. Like, you know, they're not building up too much over there in the USSR. We can afford to not build up too much either. And okay. that, that was Zolt. That was the Kissinger thing. Yeah, and that was the CIA. That was the CIA's actual analysis. Assessment, okay. Um, so the council or the committee on uh, the present danger was a group of people who were some of them in government, some of them um, in think tanks, some of them in private um, interest. Uh, the Rand Corporation was a big starting point. Okay. All um, those fucks are in there. Yeah. Um, they were essentially saying the CIA must be wrong. Give us access to the CIA's um, uh, data and we'll, okay. we'll come to our own conclusion, right? Um, and they did, and they decided, unsurprisingly, that the USSR was massively escalating its military capacity and that the US should do even more than that. Right, so it, this was a, a counter. But that wasn't true. Like I want to, I want to ask, was it? Was, who was right? Well, I'm guessing the CIA was right, not not these fucks who just wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I not think the military-industrial complex, basically. I think obviously, um, I think obviously, any reason uh, can be attributed. Like you can attribute every reason to Rumsfeld's Team B. That's their. That's the name of them. Team B's assessment being basically to make sales for the military industrial complex. Right. So they had founding board members from Honeywell, which is an arms manufacturer from orange arms manufacturer from Hewlett Packard, all these places, right. Banks, uh, two Goldman Sachs partners, right. Like these are the people that um, saw it as their right to be involved in the business of war. And uh, they thought that, um, if the government was decreasing military spending or decreasing the growth of military spending even, then they should be able to have a way around that. Um, right. Another thing that happened roughly around the same time was the uh, CAA got exposed for all the bullshit they were doing. So there was, uh, in 1975, there was the church committee, the Rockefeller committee and another committee uh, from the Senate. So basically all three, the Congress, the Senate and the um, executive branch investigated the CIA in these like hearings. They were getting um, in shit, kind of like after 9-11, mm-hmm. where they, they'd fucked up and and so then they were not really. Yeah, because they were saying like, you're not supposed to do Watergate, you're not supposed to try and kill foreign leaders, you're not supposed right. to like uh, do regime change on your own initiative. Like those are like things that we're not like, you know, expecting you to do, right? Mm. Um, so so kind of combined with the Vietnam fatigue and the, and the, the sort of general executive interest to like draw back military footprint around the world, you also have like, like these kind of oversight committees that are basically making it really, really hard for um, the war party to just kind of like change regimes and do whatever they want. Right. So what I'm saying is Rumsfeld is there as the uh, secretary of defense at a point where they need to come up with a new way to project force around the world that doesn't rely on basically uh, like 
getting the consent of the entire body politic and the whole industrial state and all of its attendant apparatus and you know the uh, executive branch but also the congress and the senate and go through you know like um you know the committee for this and and the uh you know like the right, right, oversight right. you want to get rid of oversight of the military basically so that you could do whatever you want so that you can sell more bullets is that basically the idea yeah so i think like i think that the simple the simple idea is that it's it is war is big business and this shit was in the way right i think right. that's the most simplest way to put it and then and then you get like you know mercenaries because that's the obviously the, the 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 reason like the the solution to it but i think there's also another way in which like that um that change in policy right um is reflective of more broadly not only in military and foreign policy uh, uh changes but more broadly in like the whole sense of like what we talked about with thatcher and the minor strike and whatever like the neoliberal turn to individualism this is the era in which the kind of the pre-industrial state, uh, the pre-mid-century kind of ruling class reasserts itself and says, we need a direct pipeline to get what we want done, done. And we don't want to go through like this whole process of like, you need to have the American These people. Goddamn democratic institutions. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Rumsfeld is, is really the, um, you know the good conduit of that i'm going to right. read you a little something that he wrote um and i think like just to focus on the language here he wrote this in 2002 so uh war of Af war in afghanistan has started but war in iraq i don't think has and okay. uh this is um he's the uh, the secretary of defense and he's laying out basically his doctrine for um uh changing the military the, the way the military does its work. And I think I'm obviously like, this is a huge document and I'm, I'm reading you a tiny paragraph. So I'm obviously being very selective, full disclosure there, but I just want to pay attention to the language here because it's like so obvious what's going on. Okay. okay. Starting quote, we must transform not only our armed forces, but also the defense department that serves them by encouraging a culture of creativity and intelligent risk taking. We must promote a more entrepreneurial approach, one that encourages people to be proactive, not reactive, and to behave less like bureaucrats and more like venture capitalists. One that does not wait for threats to emerge and be quote unquote validated, but rather anticipates them before they appear and develops new capabilities to dissuade and deter them, end quote. Okay, so like it's right there. Like this was written when? Like the 70s? 2002. Oh, that was 2002. Okay. Well, yeah. All right. I thought you were setting this up to be like, he's been planning this forever. But no, like that was, that was the Iraq war right there. Yeah, that was the Iraq war. As a sort of like, this was him bringing his 70s experience of, of all this shit getting in the way to bear on the present crisis. Right. Because this I like how we got fucked in New in Vietnam. What mm -hmm. we need to do is do the I see. Yeah, okay, that makes yeah. sense. So I, like as I told you, I, I kind of forgot to finish this thought, but he like he, his first order of business was like to butt heads with, with Kissinger because Kissinger was a peacenik at this point. Right. But you know, the rest of his tenure there would be basically he so he is a civilian leader of the Department of Defense, and he has to deal with the legacy generals. They're the ones that call the shots at the, at the Pentagon. 
So he got very frustrated because it was like every time he wanted to do something, like send in a fucking a small strike force to go assassinate a foreign leader of some kind, they were like, oh, we don't really do that. You have to clear that with the Navy SEALs. And the Navy SEALs would say, no, 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 this is really for the Green Berets. And then the Navy would say like, well, actually, we don't want the Green Berets doing that. So the high command is stepping in. And he was getting like he would he found so himself, annoying. Yeah, yeah he found himself unable to uh wield power directly on behalf of his defense industry friends uh right. when he wanted to and so when he came into the uh bush two administration um as uh, once again uh secretary of defense he basically said um we're not doing that anymore like this is going to be a rumsfeld run department of defense there's not going to be any generals telling me what to do and uh <coughs> Part of that is going to be this entrepreneurial approach. And so you see, right, like not only is it mercenaries, right, which we've talked about extensively and how gross they are, but like uh, if I can, if I may, the, uh, the way the war in Iraq went, right, you start out with an invasion to destroy the Ba'ath Party. And then you have to install some new kind of somewhat legitimate government. So you turn to the Shiites who are like from Eastern Iraq and they basically have connections to Iran, but you're good with them because they are, they're anti anti Saddamists, right? So, so then they take over, but then the Saudis are pissed because the Saudis didn't want like Iran proxies running Iraq. So now you have like war in the streets, right? Between the, Iran-backed um, government and their like kind of different like militias and the uh, uh, sort of various uh, Sunni um, groups in the west of the country, which some of them are like Bin Ladenites, some of them are Al Qaeda in Iraq, some of them are like kind of just ex-Bathists who are taking some Saudi money, whatever. But it's not working out. So then you stop backing the Shiites and and you let and you you give some money to some militias that are on the Sunni side look where you are now. You're just like funding death squads all over the place, right? You're, you're just like, paying people to kill each other. Um, and so it, it, at the end of the day, the, the Rumsfeld method is, of course, it's best facilitated through uh, legitimate companies, firms that have a training ground in Virginia and, uh, you know, help you solve Columbine problems. But why not also pay, um, you know, like the, the Madi army on one side, and the sons of Iraq on the other side. In fact, you know, if it all spills over into Syria, like, why, why can't you just pay, like, al for there? And then also, like, you know, um, like, let, let it, like, put some money into Israel's government, let Israel go in there, too. Like, it, it's, it's all over this war on terror, right, is, is, is that um, there's no real objective other than to be there. And the money keeps flowing no matter what right um and i think like rumsfeld very clearly articulated that in his like uh 2002 little piece there um i mean there's more that you could there's there's so many different conflict zones where this applies to and i mean you could talk about like kind of the different um the countries that are now kind of like getting into the mercenary game in a big way, which would be Russia and Turkey and probably some others. But I think that's basically what I wanted to say. I, I don't know. What do you think um, about? Oh, that sounds good. So, so what you're saying is like, it's sort of natural that 
you know, when you're fighting these proxy wars anyway, and you're paying off all the different sides, you might as well pay a, re a reputable company as well or something like that. Is that sort of what you're saying? Like it's, it's not all that different and it's, it's more reliable than paying the sons of Iraq or whatever. Right. So I think my point there is just, the, is just this, like you have the United States, a country that was at one time known for the Normandy landing and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Mobilizing its entire uh, body politic to achieve this huge task. Uh, that was World War II. That was World War II. That there's was nothing like that, right? That was that pushing was, back Germany, yeah. which had conquered all of Europe. So they needed industry to be completely under government uh, uh, directive. They needed the entire population of young men to go and do what they were like told and believe in it and whatever. And all that stuff happened and it worked. Um, but Rumsfeld's vision and his method, which has been realized, is um, essentially to uh, like remove the need for a big reason to do that, right? So you have like on the ground, you have opportunities to jump into conflict in Yemen. I see. And you have opportunities where someone can make money. Right. You have opportunities to jump into conflict in Iraq because Iraq is full of these sectarian civil wars. Syria, okay, probably the same civil war, but same thing. You have, and you're also like politically, you have the United States supporting regimes on various sides of this thing just to make sure that that environment remains volatile. And, and it, you know, it never resolves itself. This isn't like a big project you can mobilize your entire society. Okay, so can I, can I stop you there and just sort of say like, is it, so the idea is war is big business. So here's a way to keep the war going without having a quagmire. Yeah, I mean, you're right on all of those points for sure. Like, uh, yes, war is big business. I think that's the obvious point about mercenaries, right? So like, right. Uh, and, but, and but also, you know, like plane manufacturers and Tim Hortons mm -hmm. and, and McDonald's and all of, all of these things. Like missile, yeah, yeah. R&D and whatever. Right. Um, yeah, so Rumsfeld represented those people. Right. Uh, but also- but If you have a Vietnam, you're not going to be able to sustain it forever because you're going to have all these- Americans coming home, we have to have a draft and all of this stuff, which is going to make it untenable. So, so instead, well, and, and you don't have you, the same population that you did in 1943. You have a population that is, uh, you know, no longer supported by manufacturing jobs. You have a population that's under, like, you know, that's a, you know, uh, doesn't trust their government. You have a population that, um, you know, it has been kind of living through an anti-war movement. So yeah, you have, you, you don't have um, the capacity really to throw your full force at uh, a foreign power that is on your level, right? You don't have, you're, you're not, you're no longer a major player in the, in terms of. Well, you uh, won though, right? Like there is nobody to fight that is on, on par with the United States. Like, it's not like there's a Germany just waiting there to, you know, that, that's looking for a fight. Would you say that, like, if, like, so in the 70s, when the U.S. lost to Vietnam, would you say yeah. that they, they, they were confident that they could take Germany again? 
I don't know. That's a good question. It I seems mean, it seems like that had changed, right? It seems like the 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 the, the, the will of the people was broken. Is that what you're saying? Why and, are we here anyway? And, and, I mean, I'm trying to appeal to your Marxist sensibilities and the economic undergirding, right? This is no longer a manufacturing-based working class of young men. So maybe a better way to put it is that, like, when once the sort of Nixon administration sets in and kind of makes it clear to everybody that the New Deal and all that, like, spending is over, um, like, you can't do World War II again. Right. Because it requires so much money. Right. And so much buy in, not only money, but like everybody's whole lives. Right. Going. Right. Into it. Yeah. Um, and that's just not possible after the anti-war movement. And it's just not possible after the depression. of the That South. makes sense to me. Like there's a million reasons why Vietnam broke. Like, yeah. Showed why you can't just be at war forever. Right. Yeah. So this is a way of being at war forever. Yes. Like this is these war on terror wars have gone much longer than Vietnam. So much longer. Yeah. You got it. That's exactly what I wanted to say. I see. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Well, I mean, uh, I don't think we need to go any further. I think that's that's the the story. I think there's, um, I think that ultimately for me, where I find the thing to be most interesting is this passage of the kind of foreign policy directive course from Kissinger to the Rumsfeld types. I think the Rumsfeld types are like, like operational and middle manager types. And then like before that, there was this pretension in the United States that you had grand strategy and you had these statesmen and they could like kind of be empire builders like the, like the kind of, you know, British or whatever. But Rumsfeld doesn't care about that shit. He's like, yeah, find me a way to get my, like, you know, I, I want to optimize this or I want to fucking, you know, uh, cut losses here. Like he is focused on how it actually is going to happen, like in the war zone at an operations level. And we've been in that ever since. We've been in that our, our whole lives. Like since, and when I say since, I mean like, the Nixon era, not, not the Bush two era. Right. So yeah, I think that's what mercenaries are. They are a return to the kind of, um, the world that existed before the two big world wars where, you know, you apply directly, um, executive power. You don't mobilize the entire society with consent around right. war. That makes sense. So it's empire shit. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, this was, yeah, this is not, yeah, that makes sense. Got it. So this kind of harks back to our great game episode, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, in that episode, we did mention several times that we, you know, probably should have made it three or four episodes. So this was, this was one of those. Um, right, excellent. It'll, it'll probably be the last. I, I don't think we'll keep harping on the, uh, the foreign policy thing, but like, uh, you know, like, know, that's fun. Yeah. yeah, it's good times. It's good times. Love to hear about war crimes. Um, follow me on Twitter. Mm hmm. Bird fanzines. Bird fanzines. I got, we got retweeted. Oh no, we didn't get retweeted. We did get retweeted by some weird robot account that, oh, great. Birds or something, but Verso books liked our tweet this time. 
fucking A, man. Yeah. So, you know, 